Five years ago, I found myself deep within the Salmon Huckleberry Wilderness, 18 air miles east of Estacada, Oregon. It was a place of raw beauty. It was a moonlit night. My hiking companions and I had set up camp near a pristine lake, eager to spend the night under the starry sky. The atmosphere was filled with laughter and excitement as we exchanged stories around the crackling campfire. However, as the night grew darker, an eerie silence fell upon the forest. Suddenly, piercing screams tore through the stillness, jolting us from our conversations. The chilling sound seemed to originate from the heart of the wilderness, carrying an otherworldly quality that sent shivers down our spines. Fear gripped us as we scrambled to pack our belongings. Panic spread like wildfire, and one man, overcome by terror, lost control and wet his pants. We were desperate to escape the clutches of whatever creature or force was responsible for those blood-curdling screams. With trembling legs, we began our hasty retreat, stumbling through the underbrush and over fallen logs. Adrenaline coursed through my veins, pushing me forward despite the exhaustion that weighed heavy on my limbs. The air hung heavy with tension and the pungent scent of fear. As we made our way through the darkness, a swarm of bats suddenly erupted from the forest canopy. Chaos ensued, and one of the creatures became entangled in the hair of the man closest to me. His panicked cries mingled with the flapping wings of the bat, creating a cacophony of terror. It was a moment of sheer terror, amplifying the already unsettling atmosphere surrounding us. Seeking safety and solace, we pressed on, desperately hoping to leave the haunted echoes of the banshee's screams behind. Our path led us through an area enveloped in a putrid odor, a stench that defied description. It was as if the very essence of fear and decay had taken physical form, assaulting our senses and leaving us gasping for fresh air. Eventually, we emerged from the depths of that haunted night, stumbling into the dim light of dawn. Exhausted and shaken, we collapsed onto the forest floor, grateful to have escaped whatever malevolent presence had haunted our wilderness retreat. My cousin and I were on our second elk hunt. It was rifle season in the Oregon Cascades. We had been hunting hard and were pretty much exhausted from hiking and trying to locate elk. We decided that we would hit up a small valley that everyone else was avoiding due to terrain and vegetation. Beginning of our backpack hunting, we left camp at 3 a.m. and set out to a point that overlooked a corner of an old burn that had a small river flowing through the bottom. After a couple hours of fighting with rhododendrons, we came out to the burn and shortly after we got to our destination. About noon, we were deciding that no animals existed in the area and were about to leave when I just happened to glance over at a patch of blowdown and saw a nice 5x5 five five stand up. I blurted out Bull. Thankfully, he was far enough away that I didn't spook him. After a while of trying to decide what to do, we got close enough or so I thought for a reasonable shot. I missed twice. After a few minutes of looking around, he trotted down to a meadow that was significantly deeper into the burn and valley. We decided to get closer and try again. We made it to a little hill that looked over the meadow, but were running out of light and the wind was all wrong. 
By this point, the bull and his small herd had bedded down just off to the side of the meadow. We were around four to five miles from the camp and had some really gnarly terrain to get through. I figured we probably wouldn't get another chance at the bull if we left and thought the herd might stay and come back out to feed in the morning. We went to the backside of the little hill and made a half-ass shelter with rocks and sticks. I made a small fire and we went to sleep. I awoke in the middle of the night to my phone vibrating. It was a message from my wife on my Garmin. She said that she hoped we were able to make it back to the truck because the weather forecast called for three feet of snow in the higher elevations of the Cascades. I was thinking about how crappy the situation had become when I started hearing strange sounds coming from the bottom of the hill, down by the water. It sounded like a mix of laughter and crying with some noises almost sounding metallic. Think rusty gate hinges. I woke my cousin up and he was just as disturbed by it as I was. We stayed silent and just listened. It was downright creepy and lasted until around 4 a.m. Needless to say, we didn't sleep. We did see the elk again, but didn't take a shot because of the upcoming storm. Never figured out what the noise was either. My story starts about 25 years ago, 17 years old. I used to take a shortcut through the woods, Freeport, Long Island, New York, and heading towards the shortcut, I'd say maybe about 12 blocks, I had to go through like a marshy swamp area. About a hundred yards in, it's dark. It's in the back of an old railroad station. No lit light. You could barely see. You could barely see 20 or 30 yards. About a hundred yards in there, I had to follow a trail along a fence. I had to sit down to smoke a cigarette. I'm sitting there, 17 years old. I'm not scared of much, especially growing up in New York. All kinds of surprises. Until after this experience. So out in the marsh, I'm sitting down and out in the marsh. I hear some dog tags, you know, clanking together. I didn't think much of it. There are a lot of dogs out there goofing off. And as I sat there, the chains just started coming closer. The tags were clinking and clanking and started coming closer. So I'm thinking a dog's on its way, no big deal, no need for alarm. As my ears, I couldn't really see. To my left was a creek that came out of a pipe that came from under the property. It wrapped around in front of me to about a 10 or 12 yard drop to the creek. The creek's about 10 yards and a sandbank on the other side. Then there's some type of marshy small trees, and then you could see maybe 10 or 20 yards past the creek. Those clanking sounds are coming closer and closer. My ears are telling me that it should be visible soon should be coming into my range. And I still thought it was a dog, so I'm expecting to hear a little critter, you know, coming through the grass and the leaves and whatnot. And I hear two footsteps. I hear something with two footsteps. Thump. Thump. And it's coming towards me. Not a French poodle. Not a German shepherd. Two distinct footsteps coming through and you can hear the grass and the walking and the dog chains are still clinking clinking. That's about when my alarm bell went off. I'm thinking, okay, this is a problem. There's no way you can think this is anything but a problem. Something's wrong and my ears are telling me that I ought to be able to see this thing 
and it should be right there on the other side of the creek. This kinda just dragged on for about 20 minutes. It didn't just walk up. I'm thinking serial killer. I'm thinking something. I didn't know. Just bad. And I was ready to go because I should have seen it. My ears are telling me it should be there, but I couldn't see it. And I'm looking around trying to figure should I go back to the right or should I go to the left. And I'm in New York, so it's not always a friendly place, and I'm out in the middle of this swamp, and you can't see that good. To get to the back street of the neighborhood I was heading to, I had to make a left about 10 yards, go across the pipe to the right, go another 25 yards, then up the side of the hill. It brings me to the dead end street, straight up there to the neighborhood, and I have about 30 more blocks to my house. And the trail on the other side went away from the creek. So whatever would have been done there on that bank would have had a 30-yard trip to where it was, and I had a 30-yard trip to where it was. So I got up and bolted. I figured I'd beat it. I hang to the left, run to the right, and I'm in full sprint. I'm the athletic type. I'm six foot two. And just where I got to the point where I would go up this hill, a 10 or 12 foot shadow with red beady eyes stepped up from the bank and was standing right there. 10 or 12 feet. Huge. It had horns. I froze. It had horns. Just an outline. It was as dark as dark could be. All you could see is dark. All you see was an outline. Looking into this creature, it was as dark as night. Red beady eyes. Beady, not just glowing eyes. Red beady eyes, and I froze. I was just stuck. And I don't know how long I was there. I stood there contemplating some kind of communication coming at me, like step into me or something. I didn't know. But I didn't want to touch it, so I did what any red-blooded 17-year-old would do in this situation. I turned around and I ran. And I ran. And I didn't stop running. I ran all the way home. This was like 40 blocks, you know. This was like two miles. I came home sweating, huffing. My parents kind of looked at me odd. I was well raised, you know, yes sir, no sir. No ma'am, Catholic boy. I was in an almost shock. I couldn't explain to them what happened. I didn't dare. They would have committed me. They would have sent me to private school or something. I told one person in my life. I grew up in Catholic schools and I tried to tell my priest. Bell asks what he thought the creature was. It was just a definition to figure out that life wasn't what I had figured out at that point. It was something that alienated me from what I considered normal. I was in the U.S. Air Force 1962-1970 and volunteered to go to Vietnam in 1965. I got orders to go to NHA Trang, but when I arrived in Saigon, I was instead sent to Thailand and ended up at Udorn RTAFB, which in the north close to the border of Laos. It was a small base with just a couple of hundred personnel. We didn't even have any jets, just prop planes. A couple of months after my arrival, the base started really ramping up. They built a whole new barracks area and more personnel started arriving. I was an electronics tech in the communications service. We had a tiny comm center next to the runway. There were four vans with crypto gear parked next to each other with a Quonset hut for the teletype machines centered on the vans. 
There was a hooch we used as the shop and a couple of others for the radios and other comm equipment. We had wooden pallets laid out for sidewalks as it got pretty muddy during monsoon season. At the end of one walkway we had a water buffalo, a big water tank on wheels that held our drinking water. During night shift, it was the newest guy's job to make coffee for everyone in a big urn. You'd carry the urn out to the water buffalo, fill it, bring it back and do your thing. So one night, this had to be in early 67 as we were already living in the new barracks. But the new comm center wasn't completed, yet the new guy hauled the urn out to make coffee. After a while, somebody noticed he hadn't returned and went looking for him. He found the urn laying on the ground by the water buffalo, but no sign of the airman. We went on alert, the base was locked down and a big search started. He was gone. Naturally, we all assumed he had been snatched by the path at Lao, Lao's version of the Viet Cong. What we couldn't figure out was how they could have penetrated into the center of the base, and why grab an 18-year-old airman third-class teletype operator. Due to the treaty with Thailand, we couldn't carry arms, so it was up to the air police to tighten up security. We were pretty spooked. Probably a good thing we didn't have guns. Aha. Uh -huh. So three days later, I was in my hooch, and a guy came running and saying they found the missing guy. They found him on the ground right next to the water buffalo. Now, the missing guy's hooch was right next to mine, so I went in there. A minute later, he came in, escorted by an AP and started grabbing his stuff and throwing it in his duffel bag. I asked him what happened, and he said, I've been ordered not to talk about it. So I asked him where he was going, and he said, to Japan. The app was very uncomfortable and told me not to talk to him, so I shut up. I looked him over as he packed and could see he was in fine shape. He was clean, and all I could see wrong were three or four scratches on his cheek. He finished up, said bye, and off they went. We never saw him again and never heard anything else about the matter. We all shrugged our shoulders and figured the path at Lao weren't the type that beat up their captives. We couldn't figure how they penetrated the base twice, though. We figured it was just to intimidate us and things just went back to normal. I was happy when we got moved into the new comm center and away from that spooky spot by the runway. So years later in the 90s, I was watching a TV show about alien abductions, and they said something about the victims having skin samples scooped out of their cheeks. I suddenly flashed back to that event and remembered the marks on that airman's face. Could it have been? Yesterday, I took my son fishing. He wanted to go to a nearby lake that we haven't been to in quite some time. It's not known to be a great area. For some background, the last time we went about a year ago, a car drove by and screamed, Nice ass! at me while I stood there with my young son. This kind of garbage behavior is unfortunately expected in the area. It's also known to be a late-night hookup spot as well as a late-night drug deal location. Due to the lake's reputation, I had made a deal with my dad that I wouldn't stay there past 4 p.m. without him. On to the story. My 12-year-old son, who looks much younger than he is, and I pulled up at our favorite fishing spot, a small pond on the opposite side of the road as the lake. 
Almost immediately, an older gentleman approached us asking if there were fish in the pond. I replied that we had just gotten started, so nothing yet, but that we had caught fish in the pond on plenty of other occasions. He thanked us for the information and returned to his spot on the other side of the road. About 15 minutes later, another younger man approaches the older man with a dog. I can see and hear them chatting, but they've made no move to involve us in the conversation, which I'm glad for. I just want to enjoy a day with my son. Unfortunately, the water in the pond was incredibly low and murky, and I could tell we weren't going to have any luck. I tell my son to pack it up and we'll try another spot on the other side of the lake. As we begin packing our gear into the trunk, the younger man yells over, Sorry if my dog and I ran you off. I tell him it's no problem, and we were simply moving to a better fishing spot. He then starts telling me how nice it is to see a mom taking her kid fishing, how you don't see that very often, etc. I get this a lot, so I'm pretty used to it. We have a short conversation about it as I pack up, and I then move towards the driver's side doors to depart. Before I can leave, the younger man starts up another conversation, this time asking me how old I think he is. This feels strange to me, but I'm nice to a fault sometimes, so I answer his question. I tell him I'm a horrible judge of age, but maybe 25. He tells me he's 38 and I'm too kind and I laugh it off saying something like, I work with teenagers, so they always guess me well above my age just to be mean. He asks where I work and I stupidly tell him my city. Turns out he lives there too and starts going on and on about how he got a free apartment on such and such street because his baby mama kicked him out of their house. I think he's talking about some kind of government assistance program. Weird flex, but okay man. At this point, I'm standing by the car door with my hand on the handle, and my son is already in the back seat. This guy can't take the hint and starts telling me all about his awful baby mama and how women are supposed to be submissive, quiet, and do what they're told. He specifically said, I mean, it's cool that you can bait a hook or whatever, but you're still a woman. Now my alarm bells are blaring. This guy struck up a conversation by commending me for doing a typically dad thing with my kid. Now he's putting me down for the same thing. He's gone from being overly friendly and complimentary to agitated and ranting. I should have been rude and just got in the car and left, but I've unfortunately been conditioned like many women to be polite even when we're uncomfortable. Instead, I start making comments in the hopes he'll see I'm not some meek submissive woman who's going to agree with him. After all, I'm a tatted up chick with an eyebrow piercing and two lip piercings. I don't exactly look like a submissive little housewife. I guess I was trying to make him just as uncomfortable as he made me in the hopes he'd leave me alone. After he says women shouldn't be loud or opinionated, I tell him, oh, well, you wouldn't like me at all. He tries to backpedal saying, I mean, it's okay to be loud, I guess, but don't try that with your man, you know? I say, my man doesn't tell me shit. I do what I want. This kind of back and forth goes on for a while before he finally shakes his head and says, I just don't understand what kind of woman would act like that. I reply, a strong one. As soon as the words left my mouth, the older gentleman yells from his spot on the bank, 
Yeah, say that again, honey. This distracted the creep long enough for me to hop in the car and lock the doors. I still don't feel safe, though. Unbeknownst to Creepazoid, only two of my car doors actually have functioning locks, but at least they're the two on his side. I put the key in the ignition and turned. No dice. Nothing. Of all the times for my car to act up, it chooses now. Panic has now set in. As I repeatedly try to start my car, I can see him out of the corner of my eye. He's taken notice of my car troubles and is trying to get my attention. As he takes a few steps towards my car, the engine finally roars to life and I peel out of there. Only then do I let my composure crumble and have a long talk with my son about what just happened. To the older gentleman who took notice of my discomfort and provided a distraction, I'd gladly meet with you again any day. To the younger, misogynistic creep, I don't know if I was actually in any danger from you, but my gut said I was. Let's never meet again. Oh, and to my dad, I'll make you a new deal. I'm never going to that lake alone again, regardless of the time of day. Probably too late chime in and not me, but back in the 70s my father used to fly freelance charter jobs. One job was flying a dead guy to his funeral destination. On the way there he ran into some bad weather. Turbulence ensued. He started hearing a strange sound. A human sound. The dead guy behind him was gasping moaning. Sounded like a forceful her, her. Before you start thinking the dead guy wasn't actually dead, he was. The rough turbulence was forcing air out of the cadaver's lungs producing the sound. This is a true story I long awaited to share with your community. So last month I had another encounter with Bigfoot. I was out elk hunting near the Oregon coast, exploring the mountains behind Cannon Beach. I had reached the area near Grassy Lake, accessed by Buchanan Creek Road, just past the fish hatchery. As luck would have it, I had spotted a herd of 25 elk emerging from a thicket and managed to shoot a bull. After gutting and quartering the elk, I decided to do some further exploration in the vicinity with my 1989 Ford Escort. Having some time to spare, I grabbed my fishing pole and began ascending towards Grassy Lake. However, before I could get too far away from my car, I heard a strange sound coming from about 250-300 yards away. Curiosity peaked, I noticed a distinct hump amidst a grove of young Christmas trees, about eight half feet tall. Intrigued, I returned to my car to retrieve my rifle and peered at the hump through my 35 power scope. To my surprise, I observed a hand rising up, pushing one of the trees down. At that moment, I thought I was merely witnessing the rear end of a bear. I continued observing for about an hour and a half, convinced that the bear was unaware of my presence. As a light rain mixed with snow began to fall, I grew somewhat bored and decided to honk the horn of my car. Instantly, the creature's head shot up, towering a foot and a half above the trees. It was then that I realized I was looking at another one of those things. After scanning its surroundings, the head returned to its previous activities, completely disregarding my presence. Another half an hour went by, and the creature remained motionless. 
I decided to walk up the road behind the Bigfoot on a cliff to get a closer look at what it was doing. The creature was chattering, emitting deep, hollow noises resembling pig grunts. Even from a distance of 150-200 yards, I could see its hands engaged in some sort of activity. I noticed another white truck passing along the road, engaging in what appeared to be road hunting. Sensing the approaching vehicle, the Bigfoot lowered itself to the ground until the truck had passed, and then it rose back up. Frustrated by the interruption, I fired a rifle bullet into the air. Startled, the creature's head snapped back up, its gaze frantically searching the surroundings. It locked eyes with me, seemingly unbothered by my presence, as if it couldn't care less who saw it. The creature continued flipping its arm upwards, chattering and stomping its foot, as if urging me to leave. To further deter it, I fired a second round. It shot me a disdainful look before finally departing, sprinting towards a nearby hillside ridge with astonishing speed. It effortlessly traversed the mildly rough terrain in a mere minute and a half before disappearing into the steep Oliver Canyon. The ravine, with its 200-foot depth, provided me with a glimpse of the creature as it moved further into the distant forest, eventually vanishing from sight. Intrigued, I descended to investigate what the Bigfoot had been doing. To my astonishment, I discovered a dead coyote caught in an animal trap. The coyote's neck was broken, with a pool of blood and scattered coyote hair surrounding it. The creature had devoured the entrails and rear half of the animal, leaving only the head and front legs behind. Perhaps if I hadn't scared it away, it would have finished its meal. Coyote hind legs are said to be particularly tender, while the front legs are more muscular. As darkness settled in, I made my way back, planning to return the next day. When I returned to the site the following day, I discovered 24-inch long footprints left behind by the towering 10-foot-tall Bigfoot. Additionally, I found 10 strands of 5-inch long hairs clinging to a tree branch. As I reached the base of the 200-foot ravine where the Bigfoot had made its impressive jump, I encountered two deep footprints embedded in the soil. Intrigued, I decided to follow the creature's trail back into the hills. The path exuded a sweet, putrid stench reminiscent of something deceased. Eventually, I stumbled upon a cave fairly spacious inside, with a pool of water sourced from a nearby spring. It appeared as though something had slept there, though I couldn't rule out the possibility of it being a bear's den. This story takes place in August of 2013 in the mountains of Southern Oregon. I am a USAF Security Forces Airman Military Policeman. My girlfriend was at work, and as a swelteringly hot day began to turn into thunderstorms, my buddy Nick, another military cop, and I decided to go explore some back roads and get out of the heat in town. Southern Oregon is crisscrossed with logging roads, some actively used, and many totally forgotten and grown over. Nick and I spent many of our days off starting on roads that we knew, finding roads we didn't know, driving for hours into the mountains, eventually navigating back to paved roads. On this particular day, with storm clouds building over the mountains, we set off on a road we had never been on and began the drive into the mountains. After driving for around an hour, 
We hadn't seen nor heard any signs of other people in the woods. We rounded a bend in the thick fir woods and emerged in a meadow that was totally surrounded by thick aspen groves. The meadow was perfectly flat and eerily still. We both noticed the strange stillness almost immediately. No birds, hardly any insect noise, no squirrels, and certainly no other people. On the far side of the meadow, right at the edge of the tree line, there was a picnic table. The table was very odd, however. It was painted a bright orange and was much larger than a typical picnic table in a park. Remarking on this, Nick drove through the meadow to get a closer look. I remember being apprehensive as we approached. The whole scenario was exceptionally strange. The overall silence of the aspen grove was unsettling. Also, it was nearly impossible to see far into the trees as aspens grow extremely close together. When we parked by the table, I hopped out of the passenger seat of the truck to check it out. I'm not very tall, only about 5 feet 5 regardless, the table was ridiculously oversized and practically unusable. The seats were nearly at chest level, meaning I would have to climb up to even sit on them. As I was looking at the table, Nick called me over to the truck, and I noticed he was looking back into the aspens. At first, I couldn't see what he was looking at, but then I noticed a splash of color that was completely out of place in the thick trees. A small one-man tent was set back in the trees, about 50 feet from the strange table. I had an initial feeling of dread, and felt certain that there was someone in the tent, and if we could see the tent, they could see us. There were no campgrounds in this area, no people, no main roads for miles. Surely someone camping so remotely would be, at the very least, a strange person. However, as we observed the tent, we didn't see any movement or hear any sounds coming from it. Nick suggested I call out. I didn't want to, but I did. Hey, anyone in there? I yelled. No reply. Feeling completely on edge, Nick and I thought about driving away and leaving this strange area. But we began to fear the worst. What if there was a body in the tent? What if somebody had gotten kidnapped? Foolish, I know, but we thought it all the same. After some debate, we decided to have Nick turn the truck around to drive away from the camp. Should we need to leave in a hurry, he would be waiting behind the wheel. With my heart pounding, I started walking through the trees towards the tent. I was totally keyed up with my senses on full alert. When I reached the campsite, several things struck me as odd. Backpacks were scattered all over. No fire had been built, no wood collected. The tent. The tent was literally full of backpacks and women's clothing. Full of dread, I turned to leave and tell Nick what I had seen. As I left, I heard Nick start yelling. Let's go. Let's get the F out of here. Not knowing why he was yelling, I ran back to the truck. When I broke out of the trees, I saw a beat-up old Ford Taurus on the road, blocking us from leaving the meadow. I immediately leapt into the passenger seat, and Nick floored the gas pedal. The car was occupied by two men. A third person was laying against the window in the back. As we drove across the meadow, the driver attempted to block us from the road, but Nick drove around them and accelerated the way we had come from. I looked back and saw the car attempting to turn around on the narrow road. Nick drove like a madman, 
and though I was honestly terrified that they would catch up, we hit the, the highway without seeing the car again. I still do not know if the person in the back was male or female. I called the state police, and they promised to send a trooper out to check out the scene. However, I received a call the next day from a trooper stating that the campsite, the backpacks, and the women's clothing was all gone, though he could tell people had been in the area. The strange table was still by the thick aspen grove. I have not returned to the area and do not intend to. This happened about 15 years ago back in Mexico. Me and my dad along with some friends were out in the woods gathering firewood. A old dirt road used mainly by cattle and ranchers. No other traffic that far out. Ten minutes later, this nice new truck with tinted windows coming from the opposite direction stops maybe 25 feet in front of my dad's truck. We could hear somebody crying in the truck, most likely a woman, but I'm not sure but me being like 10 didn't think much of it and continued to grab fallen branches. The truck just stopped, but no one got out of the vehicle. My dad told us that it was enough for the day and it was getting dark. All the older guys in the group seemed to know something was up and jumped in the truck in a hurry. I even got my finger smashed on the door because of it. But again, I didn't think much of it aside from my finger getting bloodied. I remember my dad driving fast. They talked and murmured, but it was grown-ups talk to me and all I could think of was my finger and the pain. When we got back to the town, my dad pounded a few beers and they talked. Several years later, when I was in my early 20s, that memory came back, and I connected the dots to what we witnessed. I never felt so much fear in my life before. To this date is the scariest thing that ever happened to me. I don't have the guts to bring it up to my dad, but I'm pretty sure that it was some sort of cartel-related deal, but for some reason they decided that we didn't see anything. Also, this is because back in the day and in my area, you never really heard of crime like that. The only crime was cartel on cartel super secretive crime. So I'm sure that whoever was inside probably had something to do with them, if it was cartel related. But I can only imagine what my dad felt having me and his friends with him there and seeing something that we were not supposed to see. It could have gone terribly wrong for all of us. I used to work at a weather station in northern Canada. It was a 24-hour place, so it was manned round the clock, and often by someone who was awake. I worked nights many, many times, and I didn't see much creepy stuff, but heard a lot. Fairly nearby was a place where a couple of local guys housed their sled dog teams. You'd hear them yipping and barking now and then, and it was quite routine. Other times, it was apparent that a bear or wolf was over there and bugging them in their cages because it was a lot more than normal barking. It was the sound of shit-scared dogs freaking out. I only heard this next thing happen one time, but pretty clearly something had gotten in there and killed at least one dog. I heard the sound of a living critter screaming while it was being killed, and it totally knew it. There is no other way to describe it. If you heard it, you'd know.
I walked with cautious excitement through the old Comanche reservation. My name is Hosa, a young Comanche Native American archaeologist deeply connected to the rich history and spiritual traditions of my people. Today, I had stumbled upon a burial ground that had been concealed from us for centuries. As I brushed away the dirt and leaves, I uncovered ancient texts etched onto weathered stones. The symbols spoke of a forgotten era, revealing a harrowing tale of an unknown predator that had ravaged our ancestors 200 years earlier. The text spoke of its monstrous features, a beast with antlers, a snout, and six terrifying legs. The predator's insatiable appetite for blood left our people in fear and despair. Intrigued, I delved deeper into the mysterious history of our tribe. However, with every step, I couldn't shake the feeling that unseen eyes watched my every move. Strange occurrences surrounded me, the whispers of the wind carrying warnings that echoed through the trees. It wasn't long before I realized that the unknown predator described in the texts was not just a relic of the past. It was real, and it was pursuing me relentlessly. Fear coursed through my veins as I witnessed its monstrous presence in deep woods while I was hunting. Its antlers piercing the night sky, and its six legs propelling it with unimaginable speed. Determined to protect my people and unveil the truth, I embarked on a perilous journey. Armed with knowledge and guided by the spirits of my ancestors, I sought to confront the predator head-on. It was a battle of survival, a clash between human will and primordial terror. After many heart-stopping encounters, the ultimate twist revealed itself a betrayal that cut me to my core. Our tribe leader, the one whom I trusted and respected, had concealed dark secrets that were meant to stay buried. The predator, it turned out, was somehow linked to our own people's history, a curse that had been hidden for generations. With clarity, I understood that the responsibility to end this cycle of fear and betrayal fell upon my shoulders. Armed with my ancestral bow and arrows, I faced the predator in a final showdown. Adrenaline surged through my veins as I unleashed a barrage of arrows, each one finding its mark until the beast finally fell. As the life drained from its monstrous form, it vanished before my eyes, leaving behind only a lingering sense of victory mingled with sorrow. I had fulfilled my duty, but the wounds of betrayal ran deep within my soul. In the end, I emerged from this terrifying ordeal with a newfound strength and resilience. The burial ground, once shrouded in darkness, had now been exposed to the light. I vowed to protect my people and ensure that the sins of the past would never haunt us again. For it is through the wounds of betrayal that we learn the power of our own spirit and the strength to build a brighter future. I am a biologist, and one of the perks of the job is being able to see some remote and spectacular places that people don't see very often. Part of my work involves collecting insects from remote waterholes out in the middle of Australia, a few hundred kilometers north of Uluru. One of the ladies I work with, Alice, lives out there full time, spends a lot of time out bush, and has spent a lot of time with the local Aboriginal people, so she has a trove of stories and weird experiences. But I'll just tell you about the one I had. So as I said, I visit a lot of waterholes out there. 
Being a very arid region, these waterholes hold great spiritual and cultural significance to the indigenous people. Most, if not all of them, are sacred in some way, and they all have traditional stories attached to them. So, one day four of us headed out to this particular site, a full day of heavy four-wheel driving through the Fink Gorge. We get there not long before sundown, and as we pull up, there is a black dingo standing in the spot we are going to camp. He stares at us for a bit, then disappears off into the bush as they do. This in itself isn't weird. Plenty of dingoes out there and they come in a range of colors. Not that common to see a black one, but they are around, so that's fine. We set up camp, have a nice night of looking for pythons and drinking wine, yup, biologists. We slept in swags kind of like a tent that just fits a sleeping bag, and sometimes has a little fold-up netting bit so you can sit up in there. It was really windy that night, so no problems with spooky noises, and I went to sleep pretty quickly. That night I had a really vivid dream about the black dingo coming into camp, sniffing around my swag and scratching at the netting trying to get in. It bothered me and I woke up, but went back to sleep pretty soon after. Still, not so weird. We woke up in the morning, did our sampling, packed up camp and started off on the long drive back to town. After we have been driving for a bit, Alice starts talking about how seeing the black dingo at the campsite when we got there really freaked her out. She didn't say anything earlier because she didn't want us to be spooked. Turns out that in the traditional folklore, that waterhole is protected by a black dingo spirit. The last time Alice camped there with other people, one of them had a dream that a black dingo came up to their swag and started attacking her. This lady woke up with long, deep scratches all over her face and no reasonable explanation for them. I had no idea of this story before I had the dream and didn't mention it to anyone that morning. There is definitely a special feeling to a lot of these places. Very hard to describe. When you are out in this country, these kinds of weird semi-spiritual coincidences are commonplace. I have some more stories, but I'm typing on my phone and my thumbs are sore.